Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Uh, hello and uh, welcome to today's event on weather in the pandemic, the emerging financial landscape in Southeast Europe. Uh, the event is hosted by the Hellenic Observatory and uh, LISI, the LSE Research on Southeast Europe. My name is Vasilis Monastigiotis, and I'm the director of uh, LISI and a member of the Hellenic Observatory. Before we start our uh, clarification here, the event was scheduled to be served by my colleague, Professor Walter Zeltre. Uh, unfortunately, the whole university sector in the UK is disrupted as the teaching staff are on strike over the dispute about uh, pensions. Indeed, we saw uh, very, very big cuts to pensions uh, um, in, in the UK this year, as well as about pay, casualization of employment and increasing workload. So, Professor Selke is not able to be with us today, and I'm stepping in in my capacity as director of, of LSE Research uh, on Southeast Europe, because we think that the event is uh, of particular value to our audience, both in the Balkans and in Greece, and we felt that we should go uh, forward with it despite the, the, the strike. That noted, today's event is not about strikes, it's about uh, the emerging financial landscape in Southeast Europe. What are the forces reshaping finance in Southeast Europe post-pandemic? What are the lessons learned from the policy response to the pandemic? Uh, what are the prospects for banks during the recovery phase? And also how technology and non-financial corporations are transforming the banking sector, let alone, of course, the security situation currently with events in Ukraine, which I'm sure some of us speakers may uh, touch upon. To discuss these questions, we are delighted to have today with us a panel of very senior experts on the region uh, to discuss uh, key challenges, proposals, for future action and the role that banks and investors could play towards building back and building better after the pandemic. So let me introduce our uh, speakers. Uh, the event will start with a presentation by Professor Anthony Barjokas. Professor Barjokas is Associate Professor at the University of Athens and a visiting professor in practice at the Hellenic Observatory here at LSE. He is an economist by training with extensive experience both in academia and in policy-relevant uh, research. He has worked for 27 years on financial systems, corporate investment and innovation uh, dynamics, uh, with continuous interaction with multilateral development banks, including the European Bank for Infrastructure Development, the EU and e UN agencies. So Professor Bazokas will give the opening presentation and then we will open to the presentations by our expert panel. Our first panelist will be Mr. Fokion Caravias. Uh, Mr. Caravias is Chief Executive Officer at Eurobank and a member of its Board of Directors. He's also Chief Executive Officer of Eurobank Ergasia Services and Holdings, member of the Board of Directors of Eurobank Private Bank Luxembourg, and, uh, uh, and also of the Hellenic Bank Association. Mr. Caravias started his career in banking uh, in 1991 at J.P. Morgan in New York. Um, and in 1994, he joined Citibank. In 1997, he joined the Eurobank as Head of Fixed Income and Derivatives Trading. And in 2000, he became Treasurer at Telesis Investment Bank. Our second panelist uh, is Mr. Francis Malis. Uh, he is the Managing Director for Financial Institutions at the EBRD since uh, 2018. Uh, he leads the European Bank for Construction Development Investments in the financial sector, including banks as well as insurance companies, non-bank financial institutions and capital market infrastructure companies. Uh, Mr. Malis joined the EBRD in uh, February 2010 as a director in the financial institutions team. And from 2014 to 2018, he served as Managing Director for Eastern Europe and the Caucasus. 
Uh, our third uh, panelist is the Dr. Deborah Revoltella, who is Director of the Economics Department of the European Investment Bank since 2011, uh, uh, serving as the Chief Economist of the bank. Uh, Dr. Revoltella has led the work of the uh, European Investment Bank for some flagship publications, such as the EIB Investment Report, and she launched the idea for the design of the EIB Investment Survey, which has become a unique source for measuring and understanding investment dynamics uh, in Europe. Last, but by no means least, uh, our fourth panelist is Professor Boris Vujicic, who is the governor of the Croatian Bank, National Bank and has been in this position since uh, 2012. Professor Vujicic holds a PhD in economics from the University of uh, Zagreb. Uh, and he was deputy chief negotiator in the negotiations of the Republic of Croatia with the European Union uh, in pre-accession between 2005 and 2012. And he was also a member of the Global, Deve Global Development Network Board in the same period and a member of the steering committee of the European Systemic Risk Board in the period between 2016-2019. Uh, you'll see we have a quite packed program, but before I pass the floor to our speakers, let me make some brief housekeeping uh, announcements, if I may. For those of you that use the Twitter, in the audience, the hashtag uh, for today's event is hashtag LSE post-COVID, uh, LSE post-COVID, one word. The event is being recorded. Uh, hopefully, if we don't have any technical difficulties, it will be made available as a podcast and video uh, soon at the LSE website. And at the end of the presentations, there will, of course, be time for your own uh, questions. To submit your questions, you don't have to wait until the end of the presentation, so you, we can collect your questions as we go along. Uh, to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. The questions will be submitted to me. I will post them uh, as many of them as possible to the speakers. And for those of you that are watching the event live on Facebook, you can type your questions in the comment section below the event video. Uh, when you submit a question, please uh, state your name and affiliation uh, so that we know who we're uh, responding uh, to. Okay, with these introductory remarks, uh, let me thank all our panelists and our speakers uh, today and pass the floor to Anthony for his presentation. Thank you, Vasilis. Let, let me share the screen and then we can start. Can you see my screen? Yes, Anthony, yes. Yes, perfect. So let me start with the you know what is the idea behind this this uh, this uh, this event and this panel we thought that the pandemic and is introducing radical changes to the banking sector and we need really to focus deeply on you know how things work in real life and for that we thought that it's extremely important to bring together uh, market participants important market participants to share with us their views. So my role today is an easy one. I will kind of frame the background of what we are about to discuss, and then we will have the distinguished invited speakers. Uh, in order to give you the introduction, wh what I decided to do is to start with, uh, say, stock taking of what the literature says about you know, financial systems in, in Southeastern Europe, then move to challenges, then I would kind of elaborate on important issues with the support of a few slides. And then I finish with the yeah, kind of introduction to the panel. Uh, let me try to make it brief and stick to 10 minutes uh, as much as possible. Okay, when I look back to the you know, literature that economists have been producing about Southeastern Europe, banking sector, financial systems, I would say that we can summarize the debate in five points. 
The first point is that everybody agrees that these countries went through a deep transition process, starting from restructuring, expansion, and then there are disagreements about how things evolved in terms of rebalancing and adaptation, reflecting idiosyncrasies of countries. Second bullet point is financial integration. There's a lot of literature about how the financial systems in these countries were restructured with the support of foreign banks, what were the implications and how from crisis we moved to rebalancing in recent years. Third, there is a lot of technical literature about credit imbalances and people are more or less in agreement that recently this rebalancing has worked and we're not returning to excessive credit supply like in the past. The fourth point is assessment of reforms. There we have interesting literature about technical efficiency of, of banks in the region. And uh, most of the, of the participants in this debate uh, link the technical efficiency of banks to the European integration process. A final point, Jorge, this is kind of consensus agreement is about capital markets. People feel that we are lagging behind in the depth of capital market developments in these countries. My second slide is about current challenges. And again, I will summarize the, the debate and the you know, market insights in five points. My first point is, is about pandemic impact. We have seen deep uh, recessions in these countries, but not at the level that we have seen other parts of the world. So we can argue that you know, it, it has been a relatively modest process. Risks, there are a lot of risks and uh, the downside risks are increasing, starting from say macroeconomic imbalances and going to more recent problems with COVID waves and also the geopolitical risk. Foreign subsidiaries, this is a source of optimism, I would say, because what we have seen in recent years is that foreign banks are determined to stay and do business in the region, which was not the case a few years ago. Investment projects, this is an interesting challenge for the region, for the countries, but also for the banks operating in the region, because what we see is that investment recovery is lagging behind and is lagging behind because of, say, governance structures for risk mitigation and risk hedging, which is a technical issue that is very important for the banking sector. And finally, the fifth point of current challenges is green transition. What we see is that there is a divergence between you know, what is happening to EU member states and what is happening in Western Balkans. For all of them, in any case, there is a problem and there is a challenge of you know, uh, adopting and, and using the additional reporting and accountability challenges that green transition investment comes with. So in kind of you know, two slides, we're kind of summarize what is the stock taking of what we see in the Balkans and Eastern Europe, and then uh, you know, what are the current challenges. Let me share a few slides just to, to animate a bit the, the presentation. First, we have clear evidence that deleveraging after the crisis worked extensively in these countries and it worked fairly well. You, we can see that in the NPL reduction, which followed you know, a consistent pattern in all these countries. Now, when we look at what happened since COVID, it is very clear that most of these countries managed to press down unemployment as a pressing problem to the extent, to a large extent, of fiscal imbalances. This is even more important in the case of uh, Western Balkans, when we see 
elevated increases of, of, of public debt, which is a serious problem that I would like to come back later in the discussion. Uh, when it comes to credit supply, no surprises there. FX loans remain to be important in this region and that increases vulnerabilities. When it comes to allocation of loans to households and, and uh, corporates, as I said before, corporates are still lagging behind and picking up, but we see a lot of credit supply activity in the case of households. A uh, couple of slides to conclude my, my kind of introductory presentation. Here you see the uh, one important benchmarking exercise that the IMF is conducting from time to time. These are the most recent data that we managed to put together. Uh, to give you the benchmark for, say, an advanced European country, uh, most of these indicators will be at the level of 0 0.4, 0 0.5, or 0 0.6. What we see in, in, in Southeastern Europe is that in terms of institutional quality of financial systems, we are still lagging behind. There is a lot of progress when it comes to access. Croatia is an exemplary example there, as I see, uh, but still there's a lot to be done. Uh, my final slide on, on the overall picture is, is, is about the non-financial sector in, in the financial systems of Southeast Europe. What we see there is that there is huge room for improvement. You see what is the level of credit supply in these countries and what is the stock, the available stock of non-financial institutions in these countries. Again, every benchmark with advanced countries will indicate that there is a lot of room for improvement on non-financial stocks in these countries that might leverage further credit supply and investment in the region. Two more slides from my side. As I said before, foreign banks and their subsidiaries are determined to stay. And this is reflected in this slide, which I take from a recent survey by the European Investment Bank. A few years ago, the, the, the projections and the, the market sentiment would be much more bleak, much more, uh, you know, uh, not optimistic. Here you see that we have, you know, a lot of bright spots, a lot of green spots in uh, Southeastern Europe from the perspective of uh, uh, foreign subsidies. And this is encouraging. My final point and my final slide is about Greek banks in the region. Since this is a Hellenic Observatory event, I thought that, that we should have a slide like this. What we see is that when we compare 2009-2021, you see a huge deleveraging of Greek banks from the region. They are still there the, with an allocation of roles, one bank in each one of the, of, of the countries in the region. The volumes are much less now, and it will be interesting to, to listen to Mr. Caravias because uh, Eurobank is the, the bank that really stayed in the Balkans, both in Bulgaria, or, you know, they have a, an important share, and Serbia. Uh, these are the references that I used for putting together this presentation. Let me say a few words about the panel, the structure of the panel and what we expect from the panel. Uh, as I said before, we are very grateful that they made the time because they're all very busy people. Uh, we split the panel in two parts in a way. First, we have banking sector perspectives, Mr. Caravias from Eurobank and Francis Malis from, from uh, EBRD. Uh, one comment for both of them. Uh, Mr. Caravis is well known to the Greek audience. For non-Greeks, uh, you know, they should know what 
the market knows. Uh, Eurobank has been very proactive in, you know, introducing new initiatives in crisis times, especially in Greece, but also recently. So it will be interesting to have a fresh view from his side. Francis Maliz is, is running the EBRD network of banks in the region and in the whole region of operations of the EBRD. Uh, he has one other quality that I should underline because I'm asking for difficult questions to be answered. Uh, Francis has a lot of experience in Ukraine and the neighboring countries. So he's the right person to talk about uh, spillovers from recent events, negative spillovers from uh, recent events. The second part of our panel is the chief economist of EIB and the governor of the National, uh, Croatian National Bank. Deborah, in her service at the EIB, she has been very original in introducing a firm level and bank level service. I use some of it, and I think she is the ideal person to give us a kind of firm level and bank level perspective on how things are evolving in the region from a comparative side. Uh, when I first talked to Boris about uh, this panel, and I asked him to comment on his experience from crisis, he said, which one of the crises? I have seen many. So we are very lucky to have him with us because he will share his experience. And uh, I hope that he will be able also to talk about other issues that we asked for, like, you know, what is the importance of financial innovation in the region and his comments on capital market development. Vasilis, I will stop there. and. Uh, Please take the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. I'm sure you're going to come back with uh, some of the bullet points you have here in the follow-up discussion with the, uh, with the panelists, but I won't take any more time. I will just pass the floor to, to Mr. Caravias for his opening remarks. Uh, Vasily, thank you for the introduction. Um, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, first, let me thank uh, the LSE for the invitation and also Professor Varzokas for his nice words. Uh, we set out to discuss the economic situation after the pandemic, but I think we all agree that the topic has shifted into weathering not the pandemic only, but uh, successive shocks. Uh, never before was the entire world obliged to sail through a global disruption of the scale and scope with faced with COVID-19, only to find itself in the middle of an unthinkable military aggression in Europe. The latter will no doubt have long-term impact, not only in terms of geopolitics, and I think uh, Southeastern Europe also will be affected by that, but also in international trade and the structure of the world economy. Therefore, I would like to make a few points, but um, Anthony, I would like to start from some global themes before we go uh, to discuss about uh, the region in question. Um, and let me start from uh, globalization. Uh, it is my view that the economic landscape of the globalization is a thing of the past. As a matter of fact, the world is becoming smaller. The pandemic was the trigger, but the geopolitics are accelerating the deglobalization. A good part of the industrial production will be repatriated to the West. Governments may regulate investment more heavily on national security grounds. And all major powers will strive to increase the degree of self-sufficiency in the main commodities and energy. A second uh, 
global mega theme uh, is obviously the green transition is energy is going to remain with us for decades and is going to shape uh, our economies uh, around the globe but also in the southeastern europe the geopolitics have made clear that we need to accelerate towards the end state of renewables still this will take time and because of the recent events the transition to this end state is becoming even more complex especially europe will have to reassess its policies and move swiftly to become less dependent on russian gas by resorting temporarily to domestic energy sources maybe more traditional domestic energy sources and nuclear power but the higher energy cost will persist at least for the next few years the these two trends that i just described the deglobalization and the green transition are both inflationary so inflation is becoming less transitory as we were thinking a few months before and more structural i expect runaway price hikes to cool down but the low inflation zero or sub zero interest rate period is over it is crucial to find the balance between containing inflation and still remaining uh, pro growth because stagflation is definitely one of the challenges that we may face over the next two quarters or years there is a third global trend which is very relevant to the financial sector this is the massive use of data analytics through artificial intelligence and machine learning a trend that may reshape the financial industry and would positively impact productivity so with that let me uh, switch uh, from the global themes to the banking sector including the banking se- sector into southeastern europe uh, once more it is a challenging environment for banks exiting the pandemic EU banks in general but also banks present in southeastern europe were set for a growth trajectory after more than a decade of de-risking the focus of business plans shifted to value creation and distribution to shareholders it appears that the invasion in ukraine may make less certain uh, such an outlook on one hand we have interest rate increases which do favor banks after all negative rates were an aberration we hardly thought possible in the past let alone for the long time it lasted on the other hand uh, cost of credit may be negatively affected in any transition period and we definitely live in a transition period we should monitor the asset quality dynamics closely what will the effect of inflation or higher interest rates be for households and businesses should we expect an impact on asset quality or will we be able to avoid it as we did very successfully during the pandemic thanks of course to the substantial uh, fiscal boost furthermore the volatility in equity and debt markets may slow down the pace of in commission growth uh, for uh, for the banks and uh, finally as we uh, i mentioned that inflation may remain an issue for uh, longer than initially 
expected. This may cause a moderate but persistent increase in the operating cost of banks. So this is a summary of the risk factors that the banking sector in Europe is facing. But personally, I remain optimistic for the sector. So let me close with a few uh, words about Greece and how we at Eurobank uh, perceive our presence in uh, countries in the region. Uh, I think you would agree with me that Greece itself is uh, the textbook special case. After a decade of economic crisis and uh, unprecedented recession, the economy was ready to recover. But then the pandemic struck, and then it's when its effect was over, uh, the invasion in Ukraine uh, came over. The repercussions through higher energy and raw material prices will be definitely felt in an economy that is mostly dependent on imports for energy and manufacturing. However, on the positive side, after fixing major imbalances in the public finance of the country and the external balance, after the banking system achieving an impressive NP reduction from close to 50% a few years, just a few years ago to a single digit figure this year, Greece is on track to achieve high growth rates for several years ahead. And this definitely is going to affect the neighbor economies of the country. A return to investment rate remains highly likely in the next 12 to 18 months. The fundamentals have not uh, changed or at least not radically. The country is stable politically and is stable also economically. There is ample liquidity, uh, liquidity through increased uh, deposits, FDI inflows that have resumed in, a, in an impressive pace, and obviously the EU funds that we may have the opportunity to discuss further uh, shortly. There is a blueprint for growth and economic model transition in the government's so-called Greece 2.0 plan. And let me uh, say a few things about how we perceive Eurobank's presence in the, in the region. Uh, Anthony showed a slide about what was uh, the Greek bank presence before the crisis, what is today. Actually, Eurobank was uh, the Greek bank with the most active uh, presence, and as we speak, uh, more than 30% of our pre-provisioned uh, income is coming uh, from uh, countries outside Greece. We have a core presence uh, in uh, Bulgaria, in Cyprus, and also a smaller presence in, uh, in Serbia. And just to confirm what Anthony said, we are committed to stay and grow in, this, uh, in these markets. So uh, let me close by saying that uh, overall there are very serious challenges uh, that we are facing. But contrary to the media frenzy we sometimes see, we are not doomed. And there is a good reason to see the glass half full, at least over the medium term. Vasily, thank you. Yeah.
Thank you, Mr. Caravia, and uh, it is uh, nice to have at last some uh, optimistic uh, messages uh, coming. I think also things in the region, there's quite a few uh, positive messages. Let's see if Mr. Maliz would echo this optimism or we'll see some more, um, um, the, so a different view on this. Uh, Mr. Maliz, the floor uh, to you. Thank you, Luca. I am broadly, can you, can you hear me well? Okay, I'm broadly on the same on the same side as uh, as Mr. Carvias. I'm uh, I'm also uh, optimistic, and and the reason is that uh, I see that uh, um, the economies uh, in the southeast of Europe have in fact proved very resilient to the COVID-19 crisis, and this is in part due to the good job that has been made by regulators in the preceding 10 years. We entered this crisis with a much much better banking sector than in 2008-2009. Uh, there was much less leverage, liquidity was much better. And so all of the good work that's been done uh, by, by, by Boris and his peers over the past 10 years has actually paid off during the, uh, uh, during the COVID crisis. Just to say, for example, um, I mean, our latest forecast, and I know we are overdue, we are actually going to publish a new forecast in, in, in this month um, to take into account the effects of the war, but before the war, our anticipation was that all countries in the region, with the exception of Montenegro and North Macedonia, were expected to have a higher 2020 GDP level than in 2019. So all this despite uh, unprecedented lockdowns and, uh, and so on. And, and, so, um, and of course, um, the war has, has many impacts, and I'm sure we, we, will, we will come to this, um, not least in some sectors like tourism who thought they had gone through the, uh, the worst uh, and now see that uh, there's another wave uh, that, that is coming uh, for them. Um, we also see that uh, when it comes to NPLs, for example, um, the progress that was made in the region over NPL resolution that Anthony showed uh, were maintained during the pandemic, although, of course, there's debt moratoria that blur the picture. And uh, I, I hear that now there's a debt moratorium that is being cooked as we speak in Romania, where I'm calling from which is, uh, uh, frankly, a, a, a bad idea uh, to, to do at, uh, at this stage. But other, otherwise, we see that uh, there's, a, there's, a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of progress. And as of the first half of 2021, from the region again, only Bosnia and Albania and Montenegro had the NPLs slightly above uh, 5%, which is sort of uh, defined by the European Banking Authority as a, a threshold for high level. So nothing really to, to worry about. Uh, as a result, we also see that capital adequacy uh, is actually slightly higher in 2021 than it was in 2019. So overall, overall uh, uh, a clean uh, health uh, check. Um, of course, in the context of increasing interest rates, uh, we should worry about one thing, uh, which is going to come and hit uh, the capital adequacies, uh, is the uh, mark-to-market of the debt securities sitting on the uh, uh, bank's balance sheets uh, in Southeast Europe. Um, because sovereign bonds are just going to, uh, to, I mean, the value of sovereign bonds is going to decrease as the interest rates increase. And so that could hit the capital ratios of uh, the banks uh, in, uh, in, in the coming uh, few months. But overall, again, good return, good level of profitability. What I see also as a, as a, um, as a con- consequence of the pandemic is an increased digitalization. And digitalization is very important because to me, it is one of the areas where I see divergence between the larger markets and the smaller markets. I see less innovation, 
uh, and, and less uh, willingness of the large players to come and, and invest in these smaller markets simply because the market base is, is not there. And so I think one of the one of the areas to watch out for, uh, and Anthony also, uh, also mentioned it in his presentation, is this decoupling of the competitiveness of the uh, smaller markets in the Western Balkans as compared to the larger markets. And it's really important that, uh, you know, regional players like Eurobank actually uh, uh, make the effort. And I know it's not uh, necessarily just for sh uh, short term shareholder returns, but also for long term value creation of spreading digital innovation as quickly as possible across, uh, across the region. The other area of divergence, I think, there's two actually. You know, uh, two. Uh, at TBRD, we, we look at an advanced market economy with uh, six qualities, okay, that's competitive, well-governed, green, inclusive, resilient, and integrated. Out of these six, we see that the Western Balkans region uh, traditionally doesn't work too well, doesn't perform very well on the well-governed and on the green qualities. Well-governed is with uh, typically due to the large share of, uh, of um, state firms. And green is uh, due to uh, the fact that these countries are not yet up to speed with the, with the EU standards, but also because these are countries that have uh, traditionally been characterized with uh, high carbon intensity, dependence on coal, uh, outdated infrastructure, large energy losses, uh, low share of re renewables. So all of these things mean that uh, um, this is going to be a drag on, on, on their competitiveness because uh, the cost of energy is going to be quite uh, quite high. And of course, um, the cost of energy is even higher now that we have an energy crisis across, uh, across the, the whole of Europe. Together with uh, um, the EIB, and I know that Deborah is going to speak just after me, we are big investors in that region. Um, and it remains a very high priority for us. So I, I think you can expect to see the BRD and the EIB uh, active on the green front uh, in, uh, in the region uh, going forward. Uh, just a small word before I move on to quickly the, the consequences of the war on the capital markets development. I think this is a sore point, and uh, Anthony, you also illustrated it in your presentation. Um, it's uh, uh, the, the capital markets and non-bank financial institutions are underdeveloped, and, and actually the two are linked because non-bank financial institutions typically finance themselves on the capital markets. So you have no funding on the capital markets. It's very difficult to run a proper, say, leasing business in, in any of these economies. Um, and and uh, as a result, banks dominate the financial sector. They account for 80 to 90 percent of assets. And that is not a, a good mark for, a, for, for, for an economy. Uh, and especially when you look at these capital markets, those that have liquidity, uh, it's mostly government bonds. So really the corporate and the financial institutions capital markets, again, with the exception of Greece, uh, which is a, a very different uh, capital market, but in, 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 the, in the Western Balkans region, uh, it's really, really too small for, uh, for modernization. And that would lead me to encourage the authorities in those countries to focus on capital markets development rather than uh, uh, you know, the sexier, uh, um, you know, regulation of virtual currencies and digital tokens and crowdfunding and blockchains and so on. Okay, fine. That's very good. But, you know, um, the, a good a good sound environment for capital markets should be um, uh, should be prioritized. And and then finally, and really in a nutshell, I'm, I'm just uh, finishing a tour of four countries uh, in a broader region to try and assess the results, uh, the, the impact of the of the war. And I was Poland, Czech Republic, Romania, and, and Moldova. 
Um, of course, uh, for now, I see that uh, uh, I see limited first round effects, but I see, however, big, uh, uh, a big impact uh, on, on the first round, meaning, you know, welcoming the refugees. Uh, the solidarity that I see everywhere is absolutely remarkable and has been immediate. Uh, including through uh, jobs. Uh, it's been facilitated by the fact that a lot of these countries have a very tense job market. So there is actually uh, jobs available in, in those countries. How long will this last if there's more and more refugees pouring in is, is of course a key question. Beyond that, there's a huge shock uh, in terms of inflation, energy prices, growth expectations are being revised down. And so while I did feel a quiet determination to transform the economies, I heard, for example, in one of the countries, we need to realize that we cannot rely on single source components from totalitarian regimes, was one, what one of my clients said. Um, the, people realize that this is a long-term uh, uh, task. And of course, all depends on, on how the war will, uh, will evolve. Specifically for Southeast Europe, uh, there's a very limited exposure to Russia or Ukraine. In Romania, for example, it's uh, it's really small, especially as Romania is also an energy producer. However, there are links, and for example, Serbia is probably more exposed than other countries uh, to the potential uh, spillovers, uh, not just because it's uh, um, it's exposed in terms of FDI, but also because its alignment is going to make it a bit difficult. Serbia is historically not wanted to choose between Russia and the EU, uh, and that is going to be increasingly difficult to uh, uh, to to follow through. So overall, uh, uh, a situation of high uncertainty, but again, uh, sound banking sectors, and uh, I am not concerned with the uh, banking sectors in, um, in, in, in the region, uh, even though, again, there's been a little bit of uh, tension on the currency in the first few days after the war and in terms of the cash liquidity of some of the sectors, but it's now all gone back to, uh, to normal. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Malis. Uh, I see there's some questions coming up in the Q&A, so people in the audience, please feel free to keep uh, posting your questions. We'll take them up after the first uh, the round of, of discussion by the panel. We move on to uh, Dr. Voltella now for her intervention. Thank you, Thank you very much. And um, I'm really pleased as well uh, to be part of uh, this uh, panel and to comment on uh, the excellent uh, presentation uh, that we have uh, seen at uh, the very beginning. And I also follow what uh, Falken was uh, just at the beginning in saying. At the end, uh, we are talking at, uh, at, uh, uh, about a shock after a shock. So we have a series of shock that we are uh, seeing effect in the region. And I think it's important to understand how we were coming out from the pandemic and how these new shocks adds to the situation that we had. My task, Anthony was telling, asking to, to discuss a little bit about the financial sector and the corporate sector. So I will try actually to bring a, a few elements on how we see the situation, the challenge, and the need for policy intervention in the two contexts, taking in mind this idea of the shock on the pre-existing shock. And on the financial sector side, I think the, the first shock, so the COVID pandemic went relatively well, I think, in the region compared to the previous, to the original expectations at the beginning of the pandemic. At the end, we ran, and Anthony was mentioning it, we ran every six months for the Vienna Initiative, actually a survey of 
banks uh, in the region, in uh, Central Eastern Europe, but also the whole region is covered. And there, uh, what we were seeing uh, was uh, that uh, just uh, after a first shock and a lot of uh, concern in the first uh, year of the pandemic, in reality, already in 2020, um, uh, in 2021, you were seeing uh, that both the supply and the demand condition were relaxing again. It was uh, again uh, coming back to more uh, normality. And even uh, the expectation in terms of NPL, we didn't see the big shock in terms of NPL. So that at the beginning, uh, people were expecting. So at the end, uh, we ended up uh, after uh, the, the COVID pandemic uh, with a situation in the banking sector that was uh, milder, even if uh, we were all convinced, and I will talk more about it on the corporate side, that a few issues may be hiding uh, behind. So there was concern on what's next, but the situation remained quite behind. On the financial sector, that's the post-COVID, we have a new challenge coming up. The new challenge is related, of course, to the war, the war in Ukraine, but also to the sanction in Russia. Why is that? And I think um, there I tend to be a little bit more concerned than the average, and I hope to be wrong. But on my perspective, what I see is that the region is still very much concentrated in terms of banks that operate. It's just a bunch of five banks that are, no, seven, eight banks that are important in the region. But, uh, um, but also what you see is uh, that uh, five of uh, these banks uh, have been exposed, uh, um, are exposed to the Russian sanction, Belarus uh, and Ukraine as well. It's not a systemic issue. It will not affect the, sustain, the systemic stability of this institution, but it's going to affect them in terms of profitability on the one side, but potentially also on their overall strategy committed to the strategy of Central Eastern Europe. We have seen in the past Societe Generale already quite exiting from the region. And uh, Unicredit is now wanted to be even stronger in Russia. Probably it's uh, thinking again about the presence. But then uh, if a big chunk of the investment that uh, represents a big chunk of profit for, for the overall group comes, uh, disappears, the question is whether they will have the same commitment to the region and whether there will be some spillover effect in terms of less commitment to grow, more tightening dynamics, and at the end, a more tightening environment in the region. So that's on the financial sector side is my concern that indirectly, we didn't see the big effect of COVID, of the pandemic, in terms of NPLs, I am more worried of some spillover effect, more of a strategic decisions for the big players in the region coming up from, from the consequence of the war on the one side, but also of sanctions toward Russia. That's on the financial sector side. On the corporate side, um, again, uh, positive and negative. So I think uh, what we have seen is uh, that at the corporate uh, 
point of view, what we've seen is uh, that uh, uh, during uh, the pandemic, uh, the very strong uh, policy support uh, was uh, well allocated. Uh, so it went, it didn't go much to zombie firms. It went uh, to firms uh, that were affected by the crisis. And what it allowed was uh, uh, allowing uh, firms uh, to start uh, some transformation process. So it was a kind of a moving in the right direction. But at the same time, we saw that uh, um, divergence across the firms was, was increasing. And what we were still waiting in the recovery phase was to see if firms would be resilient to withdrawal of the policy support. This phase of resilience still had to be tested. And many had concern that in some cases we would see more uh, default or more non-performing loans uh, coming up. Now the new shock is coming and the new shock is again, uh, it's, uh, I would say is uh, the, the first immediate effect uh, is a more, much more protect, protracted energy shock. And that's going to affect as well the corporate sector in a moment in which they were expecting to have only the positive coming up. So we have again a shock on corporate that could, um, should, should be faced. It could lead to much more tightening condition to firms and again coming up more of this insolvency and MPL that we didn't see on the past. Do we need to see a big crisis coming up? Probably not but we are going to see more tightening, a much more tightening condition, at, at least uh, that's, uh, that's uh, uh, my worry that coming up. So what I think it's important on a policy po point of view is uh, to pay very much attention to, um, to what we will see in terms of uh, credit tightening condition with withdrawal of policy in terms of liquidity and support to the corporate sector. I'm worried about the cross-border flows, also intra-company cross-border flows that may be affected by this deglobalization, if you want, or or uh, enhance uh, geopolitical risk that is also pricing in intracompany transactions. So I think that on a policy point of view, we have to do much more uh, looking at, uh, at the liquidity situation and uh, at uh, how this additional shock is going to influence the corporate side and on the other side also the tightening of lending condition on uh, the banking side. But that's what we have to to see on an institutional point of view, we are definitely looking into it. We are looking at extending our support to corporate, to cross-border transaction. We, we entered directly in Ukraine, actually supporting the, the, the government in terms of liquidities, but we are very much also looking at the potential spillover effect of the economic crisis uh, to the rest of the region and then a support on that point of view. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. 
Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you, uh, thank you Dr. Verdella. Uh, so, some optimistic picture, solid basis and good regulations, good uh, policy making and performance uh, on the one hand, but also, of course, some uh, uncertainties, risks, both for the uh, financial sector and the corporate sector. Uh, let's pass on to the floor to uh, Professor Wojcic, who can speak from the more institutional side from the Central Bank perspective. Um, thank you very much. Your camera is uh, off, if you don't mind. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, my camera is off. Let me see. Yeah, okay. Um, let me uh, try to give first a brief overview of uh, uh, where does the centralist and the Southeast European banking system comes from over the last uh, maybe 20 years. It all started in the 90s, of course, with the beginning of the transition, the emergence of the private banking, and then the lessons that we learned through the, through the last few, few crises. And I think these lessons are very valuable for the, for the future. Um, basically, after the first phase of the transition in 90s, 2000s were basically a period when the banking system in, in Central East Europe was uh, fast converging and rapidly growing. Uh, it was also a period of uh, very uh, high profitability of the banking system. Uh, but with the start of the great financial crisis, uh, the trend has changed in a number of ways. First, the period of 2000s when we saw the most rapid growth of the banking system was characterized by the large capital inflows as the banks have used imported capital to finance the uh, both the retail and corporate and the government sector in the countries in Central and East Europe, where they uh, establish their subsidiaries. I'm talking, of course, about these uh, um, Western European banks that uh, expanded into the Central East Europe and Southeast Europe and basically um, were leading the, the development of the banking sector since then. Uh, at the time of the GFC, which was, of course, not uh, caused by what was happening in, in Central East Europe, but the crisis that started in the, in the US in the banking system, the vulnerabilities of that type of the growth were exposed in the sense that uh, they have created also imbalances, macroeconomic imbalances, particularly in the current and uh, capital account uh, balances. So what we've seen then after the great financial crisis in the next decade, uh, in the next 10 years before the COVID crisis struck, was a much more modest growth of the, of the banking system uh, and much more based on the domestic sources of funding rather than on the imported capital. Uh, I would say that that has made the growth of the banking system uh, and financial deepening to that extent also a bit more modest, but more healthy. So based on a healthier, uh, more stable 
sources of uh, funding. What we've also learned during the great financial crisis was that uh, sometimes it's not that bad to have less sophisticated banking sector. We've seen that uh, too much sophistication and too much innovation, like we've seen in the uh, US mortgage market, for example, can lead uh, more easily to a crisis than uh, having a less sophisticated, more traditional ways of lending, which do not cause these type of problems. And we also learned that the macroeconomic stability is very important for the banking sector stability, uh, which was, for example, clearly demonstrated in the case of the Greece dur during the Eurozone debt crisis, but also that the banking sector stability is also very important for the macroeconomic stability, which was clearly demonstrated at the same time by the case of the Ireland. So we had a, it was a kind of a same crisis, but with very different causes and, uh, and the consequences. During that crisis, Eurozone debt crisis, we did not see any costs of uh, banking resolution problems in Central East Europe or the Southeast Europe. While at the same time in Western Europe, you had uh, high costs from very high, for example, in Ireland, but in many other countries as well. Uh, and these were the, the, the problems of uh, resolving the banks, even in, uh, even in a very uh, efficient uh, markets like the, for example, Dutch, uh, Dutch market. Uh, what we also learned in the period after the great financial crisis is that you can, you can see a high productivity increase, I would say, in the, in the banking system uh, with the banking system becoming uh, more stable, more resilient. If you look, for example, at the, the uh, number of employees or bank branches uh, today, and you compare them with uh, 10 or 20 years ago, you can see that the banks with uh, less employees, less branches, uh, provide better services today than they used to 10 or 20 years ago. So the development of the banking sector has been uh, to a large extent on the basis of, uh, of uh, rapid increase in the productivity, which is sometimes uh, sometimes overlooked. Uh, we also have, at least in some countries, for example, in Croatia, much smaller number of banks today than we used to have 10 or 20 years ago. For example, when I joined the Central Bank, we had 60 banks in Croatia, while now we have uh, only 20 banks. So basically two-thirds of the banking sector system was closed down by the central bank. Meanwhile, and we have the uh, more competitive and more efficient banking system today than we used to have when we had uh, 60 banks. So I think it's also a lesson uh, learned and it's also a lesson that might be uh, shared with our, with our colleagues in, uh, in Western Europe. 
Also, if you look today at the cost-income ratios in the in the banks, uh, in many Central East European countries, subsidiaries of the international groups of the banks have uh, significantly lower cost-income ratios than their mother mother banks, which means that their efficiency is uh, is higher. And at the same time, they have a higher capitalization. Combined, often they are more profitable than their, than their mother banks. Of course, the profitability is higher in the, in the areas like uh, Russia or Ukraine, uh, where the profitability is still at the levels that we saw in Central and East Europe in, uh, uh, let's say, 2000, beginning of 2000s. But of course, the risk is also higher as we, as we just, uh, just learned. Uh, some of the lessons learned were also transferred into the regulation. Uh, it's in part a, a regulation that we did uh, even in the 2000s, like, uh, like some beginnings of the macroprudential regulation, but particularly after the great financial crisis, we had a, a, a spread of uh, macroprudential regulation in Europe. We had a BRRD, which is there to make uh, banks more, uh, more stable. Uh, we have new liquidity requirements for the banks, etc. And that does make a banking sector more stable, which was then uh, an, an important asset during the pandemic crisis, which was a very different type of the crisis than the, than the I would say, endogenous financial sector crisis that the GFC was. This was the exogenous uh, health crisis, but uh, during that crisis, as was said before, banking system was not amplifying the shocks through the real economy, but was actually, but actually served as a as a uh, shock amortizer, and uh, and uh, because of we built a better, more resilient banking sector, has helped the quick recovery after the after the pandemics. Also, what we've learned uh, during the previous crisis in terms of the policy making has helped, I think, to a large extent during the COVID crisis, as we had available tools, for example, in terms of the monetary policy, asset purchase programs that could be released immediately. And the reaction was very strong, immediate, based on the lessons from the from the previous crisis, which has helped uh, the crisis being uh, uh, short-lived and the recovery being very, uh, very uh, quick. Okay, I see I'm running uh, out of time, so uh, uh, I'll discuss maybe the challenges that are ahead of us a little bit later. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor. Uh, which is, uh, we have some questions in the uh, Q&A, but we will answer them live. We don't need to type, uh, you know, won't uh, type answers uh, directly. We are actually at the end of our, a lot of time for, for the panel discussion before we open to Q&A. But I would like to take five, six minutes for a round of uh, a follow-up round by Anthony. So, Anthony, the floor is, the floor is to you to ask a couple of follow-up questions for the panel, and then we'll open up to taking questions from the audience. A few quick questions for, for brief answers. 
my first question goes to to, to Fokin, Fokin Karavias. Uh, Fokin, when you talk to investors and when you talk to policymakers and uh, you try to find out what is the optimistic scenario for these countries, what are the preconditions you are proposing to them? What they should do from their side for an optimistic scenario in Southeast Europe? Okay, Anthony. Um, uh, it is not what the investors should do for the uh, optimistic scenario, but uh, overall what uh, the policymakers should uh, consider as um, the most important steps in order to have uh, an optimistic scenario. And um, I think uh, uh, one thing that is a must is to see a broader, a deeper cooperation between the countries in the region, given also the geopolitical uncertainties, which may become uh, more permanent than uh, we feel at the moment. And um, I think cooperation at all levels, political, economic, but also trade, commercial and business uh, relations. On the political front, I think it is important that most countries in the region are already EU members, okay? And I think it would be very positive if more countries, especially in the Western Balkans, also join uh, the EU. On the energy front, which is becoming, I would say, the single most important element for the future uh, growth, um, we, see, we should see uh, an energy integration uh, in the region moving forward, and this is quite critical. Uh, let me give you a, a few examples. Greece and Bulgaria, uh, for instance, uh, share quite large energy projects, namely the IBG, which is the vertical pipeline going from Greece to Bulgaria and then to Romania, the FSRU in the port of Alexandropolis, and there are also discussions about uh, setting up uh, joint projects about uh, nuclear energy uh, between the two countries. Um, there are also discussions involving uh, uh, Cyprus about um, the Eastern Mediterranean. So um, these are all steps to the, to the right direction. Uh, now, in, in terms of what the policymakers could uh, do, I think the reaction to the pandemic provides a blueprint uh, for uh, what can be done in the most efficient way. EU policies during the health crisis were innovative, and I think they constitute a real breakthrough for Europe. The scale of, of the response was up to the challenge with the creation of the Resilience and Recovery Fund, the, what we call RRF, um, a fund for which um, Greece, Bulgaria and Cyprus, for instance, are going to, <clears throat> to receive the highest RRF injection as a percentage of their GDP. Now, what is important with the RRF funds, but also with the other uh, European programs financed either by EIB and EIF or EBRD? It is that it, this is not just uh, helicopter money, or it is not at all helicopter money, but um, effectively uh, they are focused uh, exactly on the challenges we discussed earlier, namely the green transition and the digital transformation, uh, along with three other pillars, which is uh, further development of research and uh, of R&D in, in these countries, exports and facilitating the creation 
of uh, large companies. I think this is exactly the strongest point of these EU programs and makes them a precondition for the positive scenario in, uh, in the region. Obviously, <clears throat> the private sector has also a major role uh, to play. And as I mentioned before, at Eurobank, we have decided to remain as a regional bank and not just a Greek bank, because we see expanding trade networks and many opportunities in the interregional exchanges. And after all, finding regional banking partners is instrumental in facilitating these exchanges. Thank you, Fakim. I will ask one more question and then I'll give the floor to Vasily to take up uh, Q&A. And my question goes to Deborah because I wanted to get her view on green transition and to what extent the environment you described in, in a skeptical way is kind of undermining the green transition in the region, both in terms of infrastructure investment, but also in terms of private sector corporate investment for green solutions in a way. I think, uh, I think uh, there is, um, clearly there is, a, there is a, a huge challenge, but also an opportunity, as you say, as everybody <laughs> on the policy side would say, but I think it's really true in this case. The challenge is, is clearly that what we see in this moment is more protected than expected energy shock. The more protected than expected energy shock has an immediate effect on households, in particular more vulnerable households, home corporates. It's again affecting with all the shock we had seen before of COVID, normalization of policies going on. So the, um, the temptation of simply compensating blankly for uh, this uh, price shock um, is there. And uh, in some cases, it's also right to have a partial compensation. The problem is uh, that uh, if, uh, if this is done, uh, the whole incentive for, uh, for uh, the uh, climate transition and for moving forward in the climate transition, uh, they may actually uh, be reduced. And uh, uh, talking about energy security as well, uh, the movement into energy security depends how you do it, but uh, can also bring you back in terms of uh, the climate transition. So what I, I think it's very important in this moment, and the European Union is very much moving in this direction, is to give a, a clear direction in terms of, uh, a, a clear signal in terms of a direction on the energy transition, try to create uh, the uh, path both for the transition, but also for uh, improved energy securities, but giving uh, the direction in terms of movement, also in terms of uh, national policies on uh, what should be done. And I think there is a lot that can be done. One, uh, one and I think both on our side, and Francis will say the same on, uh, on his side, uh, energy efficiency is really the no-brainer in the response side. Rather than giving a bland checks to people to afford paying for the energy cost, giving a blank checks for doing energy efficiency investment, that could be something very, very, um, very, very efficient also in terms of moving uh, then uh, in uh, the right uh, direction going forward. 
So I think it's not necessary a trade-off. It can become a trade-off depending on the policies that are implemented now. Uh, clearly, we are facing a crisis, so it's difficult to balance. But I think that uh, um, we should, on a policy point of view, have a very clear direction that the energy transition continues. Actually, we go in the energy transition, we could even uh, leapfrog some, some step and trying to move uh, faster in terms of, uh, of this and uh, focus uh, very much on energy efficiency, also other than uh, creating uh, the right infrastructure and then, uh, um, and then uh, the, the all energy security side, but in the immediate uh, compensating, uh, rather than compensating consumers and firms uh, with uh, blank checks, I think uh, focusing very much on energy efficiency is, uh, is a fundamental. It's not all clearly the overall solution. Uh, you, it's a multi-year process, but I think the signal is very important in this moment. Back to you, Vasilis. Okay, thank you, uh, Anthony. I would like to open the uh, the Q and A session with a question by Ian Beg, a colleague here at the uh, European Institute in LSE, and and perhaps I don't know if Francis uh, would like to answer it, but also other uh, members of the panel. So the question is: Beyond the overall uncertainty arising from the war in Ukraine, obviously, how vulnerable are financial intermediaries in the region to extraterritorial effects of U.S. sanctions, maybe also EU sanctions? on those inclined still to do business with Russia, and in particular also for the case of Serbia, given the, let's say, less unsympathetic stance towards Russia, uh, does Serbia risk being especially vulnerable uh, from US or EU sanctions? Maybe I can uh, I can take this one. Um, look, <clears throat> I think uh, the one thing is sanctions, the other is uh, what we see right now is much broader than sanctions. There's a large level of uh, popular pressure uh, for uh, reducing uh, reliance on Russia as a, as a supplier. There's no sanction that uh, forces uh, Renault to stop doing business in Russia or Nestle or uh, McDonald's or, you know, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, there are, uh, and similarly, there's no sanctions that are going to force people in, in, in Serbia to, to do this. Um, one thing, though, is that, uh, of course, the Serbian banks, most of them, a large number, are actually subsidiaries of EU large banking groups. And so they are not only going to apply the sanctions, but probably what we see as well is uh, a tendency by financial institutions to be broader in their definition of sanctions or, of, uh, or to be more careful. That is, they sanctions on a certain subset of a country and they say, OK, fine, then we know we're not going to open accounts to anyone from that country. All right. Uh, and we see this in, in Poland, actually, uh, where a lot of Polish banks were telling me, look, we, we don't open bank accounts for Russians. It's not, it's not we don't open bank accounts for sanctions Russians. It's we, we sanctioned Russians. So we do not open bank accounts for Russians altogether. All right. So, so I think uh, this is a, a dynamic phenomenon. Right now, it is only going in one direction, which is to to reject uh, uh, Russian uh, contacts with uh, with Russia. How far and how, how long this will go on is the is of course the, uh, anybody's uh, anybody's guess. Um, I just would like to also take the opportunity to agree with Deborah on the, the need to focus on energy efficiency uh, as part of the response to the energy cost crisis. I actually don't feel that yet in the countries where I've just visited, 
and I think it is uh, a shame. Um, it, it should come, um, and uh, and that the price of energy uh, increase should provide a much bigger incentive for everyone from households to cooperate to really invest in energy efficiency, uh, which, by the way, we all know uh, is the. Uh, there's no way we meet the goals of the Paris Agreement by only working on the energy supply and investing in renewable energy and, and so on. If we don't work on our behaviors and on our consumption, we're not going to get there. Thanks, Francis. Would somebody else like to come on, uh, on this question? Okay, let me move to a, a question for for the governor. Uh, um, by Romana Kafedzic, uh, uh, says she is a Croatian national. Um, it's very interesting to hear your opinion on how Croatia can progress uh, the future of the younger generations, especially now that Croatia is in the EU, through the financial sector, and what can other industries do to support? I think that uh, you do progress the future of uh, the prospects of the younger generation through the overall economic policies in the country, and at the moment I think Croatia is in a good position in the sense that we entered into the EU in 2013, which was very beneficial for Croatia. From 2014, it started to really recover from the from the crisis, uh, and it has been turning both the fiscal position, current capital account position, on the basis of entry into the European Union. And now Croatia will also be the first country that will not experience the decline in the usage of the EU funds after the first seven-year financial perspective because of the next generation funds. On top of that, it will probably enter the European Monetary Union in a matter of months and uh, also the Schengen. So I would say that these, uh, uh, all these three things are very much uh, growth positive for Croatia, for, for the future, and particularly for the uh, next few years. Uh, the government, however, and uh, everyone, all the policymakers should use that opportunity also to push with the remaining structural reforms that we all know uh, are overdue, particularly in the uh, government uh, uh, sector, the public administration, judicially, healthcare sector. And if that, uh, if that happens, I'm sure that the uh, growth potential of Croatia over the medium term is uh, is a very positive one. Uh, thanks. I, I think we'd like to bring in another question. I don't know if the governor would like to reply or other other uh, panelists uh, as well. Um, by Neira Nalitz Magarik, where things involved in microcredit uh, uh, in the in the region, and uh, asking, could you please talk about financial inclusion and how will policymakers support digitalization? in order to reach out to lower income people and their needs on financial services. So that's also a question for the institutional, uh, for the development banks uh, as well, I would imagine. I, I don't know, Deborah, if you'd like to say something for Kieran. Yeah. Uh, let me share with you my experience for that. I think microcredit is something important. It's part of the financial inclusion, and I think uh, we have to support it. Um, uh, let me share the experience we have in Greece with microcredit. Eurobank is um, the main bank which supports microcredit uh, through the AFI, uh, an organization that effectively sponsors this uh, uh, microcredit, and we would like to enhance further 
our cooperation with this institution. Uh, the government has uh, recently passed legislation in order to um, enhance the uh, operation of microcredit institutions. They can get a license from uh, Bank of Greece. And um, uh, I think we're going to be very supportive to, to such an idea. Uh, it is part of uh, the ESG criteria, and uh, we are committed to, uh, to, to something like that. Um, we haven't, we mentioned Ukraine and Russia, of course, and, and COVID and uh, everything else. There's a, a question that brings in China, of course, and uh, uh, by Zeliko Batica, if I pronounce it correctly. Uh, thanks to all for your insights today. My question relates to the extent of exposure to China, to the China Belt and Road Initiative for Southeastern European countries and the risks of loan and repayments with regard to that. Um, would somebody like to pick up on, on this? Less on China. Uh, I guess because in in the previous time before the war in Ukraine, we were quite concerned about the the, the positioning of China, both in Greece but also in in the Western Balkans and elsewhere in in the region, but also investments from the Emirates uh, and so forth. Uh, are there any risks that you see now in you know in the post-COVID and post-war in Ukraine uh, era that come from uh, from China? Vasily, uh, yeah. uh, I said with my introduction that uh, one of the global uh, trends that we are going to observe over the next uh, years is the deglobalization. And definitely this trend is going to affect the relationship of the West with China. Um, I would expect that uh, some of the manufacturing uh, will come back from China to, to the West, to Europe, and I think uh, Southeastern Europe having lower uh, costs than the, the, the rest of the Europe could benefit uh, from that trend. Uh, in Greece, for instance, we see uh, investments in uh, manufacturing. And um, uh, I think countries like Bulgaria or Romania or Croatia could also benefit from this, uh, from this uh, trend. Uh, obviously, uh, China has already a presence in a number of European countries, uh, including Greece, especially in infrastructure uh, projects. In, in uh, Greece, uh, they operate uh, the Piraeus port, which is uh, one of the largest ports in the Mediterranean. Uh, they have also a significant uh, stake in the management for the um, high voltage electricity grid in the, in the country. Um, I do not expect that this presence will increase further uh, because um, there is a decision at the European level uh, to try to, to limit this, uh, this, this presence. Overall, and I will close with that, I think the deglobalization effect will make the relationship, the trade relationship between Europe and uh, China less compared to what was uh, a few years ago. Okay, thanks uh, for again. Uh, I have uh, one of my own questions, if I may. Uh, can I address it to, to Professor Witz uh, directly? I tell my students here at LSE that um, uh, systematically, uh, central bankers in the Balkans 
uh, have been performing better than prime ministers or presidents uh, in the Balkans. And I notice also we have in the audience uh, a couple of very good colleagues, uh, Aneta Kristseva uh, from uh, uh, from uh, the chief economist in the, in the Bank of North Macedonia, Eleni Luri, former uh, deputy governor in the Bank of Greece. Uh, it goes everywhere, not only Western Balkans, but also Eastern Balkans, I think, Greece, uh, Cyprus. Um, is there a secret to, to that? Why Why are the governors so much uh, more impressive, I think, than, or am I wrong in my assessment? <laughs> uh, thanks for that question. I would say that the central banks overall uh, seem to be uh, really good institutions, uh, often better than other institutions in, in many countries. And uh, I would uh, think that this is mostly because central banks, more or less, not always uh, uh, to the same degree, but more or less um, independent, really independent institutions from the politics. And uh, that has been the main reason, I think, why central banks uh, have been better equipped and were able to make like, good independent decisions over the, over the time. Less involved in the politics, less, less involved in the, in the day-to-day uh, political uh, uh, fight that you have in the countries. And that's, that's definitely something which makes them uh, better institutions. And I would say this is to a higher or lesser degree, but on average, the case in, 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 in all of the countries. Can I add a comment on this? Because it's important. When people talk about you know, what happened after the great financial crisis in the Southeastern European region, uh, they usually ignore or they, they don't comment on the very efficient informal coordination between central bankers either between themselves or also between things like the Vienna Initiative or the ECB. And this is really not been recognized so far. And I wanted to just to bring it to the attention of the audience. Oh, that, that's definitely the case, Anthony. Thanks a lot for, for that remark. I'm the chair of Vienna Initiative, so I, I really believe that Vienna Initiative had a very positive role, particularly after the great financial crisis. Uh, that it uh, acted uh, promptly and uh, efficiently and stays a good coordination body. Uh, and also at the European level these days, uh, the, the, the central bankers' communication is, uh, is a very good, uh, very frank, very active one. Uh, also now during the uh, wartime in uh, Ukraine, uh, on a number of issues that we that we deal with, on some of we have already found uh, uh, solutions or uh, the the ways to proceed, and on on some others we are still discussing. But the uh, the discussion and the cooperation is is a very active and very useful. Yep. And so good institutions uh, in the region and outside the region and independence. I have a, another question for which I will address to the uh, international banks uh, for Deborah uh, and, uh, and Francis, because you both mentioned, uh, paid, you know, quite, quite some emphasis on energy, energy efficiency, energy sufficiency, the green transition. And uh, there is this uh, 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 small paradox, I think, that we are asking 
uh, a, a big step, which also the West uh, hasn't uh, really found a way how exactly to do it. Uh, and we're asking some countries which are really, you know, they don't have the scale, they don't have the level of development, the capacity, they have other systemic or structural uh, problems, think Kosovo, Bosnia, uh, to do the green transition. And to, uh, but you did present it as an opportunity, as a threat, but also as an opportunity, especially for the corporate uh, sector. So is there a sense that maybe we can differentiate this and, and you know, expect more on the green transition from perhaps places like definitely Croatia, maybe Serbia, definitely Greece, but less so from, uh, I don't know, Kosovo, Montenegro and Bosnia become <laughs> three random countries. Deborah? Uh, I think... Uh... I think that it's very difficult to, to, to think at a different speed of, uh, in terms of, uh, of, uh, of uh, um, energy transition and green transition across countries. So what we can think about is, uh, uh, is uh, kind of uh, compensating uh, some countries uh, in terms of uh, much more policy support, international support, and uh, much more technical capacity also to, to manage the transition. But at thinking at a completely different speed and particularly speed maybe you can, can adjust, but uh, allowing the coupling between some countries moving much, much faster and others not moving in the direction, that would be extremely difficult. Also because it would be difficult then to Isolate. This is also a region that is very much integrated in international trade, in global value chain, etc. How do you manage a differentiation in that point of view? So I think it should be the same, the same direction for sure. Um, if you ever to accelerate the speed, it's a fair to think at compensating mechanism, and actually that's what what I think we are trying all to do: compensating mechanism in terms of more more policy support on the financial side, but also on the technical capacity. Uh, I mean, for sure, I fully agree. The second thing I'd like to say is that we actually have a framework for this, and that's called the Paris Agreement. Each country prepares their own contribution, makes its own proposal, and uh, and then that is kind of their own commitment, right? So um, yes, there's peer-to-peer -peer pressure, and uh, uh, and and we do hear occasionally, you know, why do you ask us to do things in this country that the richer countries do not do until uh, a later date? But the, the truth is, we have we have this uh, this framework, and it's really important. The other thing um, that I think is important to, 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 it's important to frame this in terms of the competitiveness of the country. Energy is a key dependent, key determinant of uh, competitiveness in many industries. And especially if the EU implements its carbon tax, it will actually become a much more important for all of these countries to invest. And then, of course, there needs to be funding for the investment. And maybe they're going back to the question about uh, uh, you know, some of the state-to-state -state, uh, loans that we heard about. Um, my take on this is a, a free loan. You know, it's like, a, it's like an economist would say there's no free lunch. There's no free loan either. If you believe that there's a free loan, it, it means that you do not see the, 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 the links, the ties that come with it. And then the ties, uh, you know, the strings are attached still. 
so beware of the free loans because it comes with strings attached. With strings attached. Good point. Good point. Uh, we we're running out of time, but there is one more question, which is a uh, kind more a bit more Eurobank specific. So address to Mr. Caravias. Let me take it by Costas Falangas. I think um, um, is there a general provision by Eurobank concerning the continuity of hotel investments in Greece today, taking into account the war in Ukraine, as well as the provision in the general operation cost of hotels due to the provoked inflation? Um, so, Mr. Caravias, any comments on this? Uh, the people of the hotel and leisure sector expect a very strong year for 2022. Um, last year, we had, uh, as a country, revenues of about, of close to, to 60%, slightly less than 60% of the 2019 uh, revenues. Uh, for uh, this year, I would expect that uh, revenues will go more than 80% of 2019, and some uh, people expect to even to, to approach the 2019 uh, uh, figure. So overall, the prospects for the Greek tourism uh, are very positive. Uh, the uh, revenues that Greece had from Ukraine or uh, Russian customers are, are very small, and uh, are not expected to, to affect the, the outcome of, uh, um, of, of for the year. Now, um, inflation obviously um, uh, is going to increase the operating cost of uh, hotels in Greece. Uh, I would say that inflation should increase the operating cost of hotels across Europe. Um, and uh, as a result, we may see the margins uh, for the industry to be smaller compared to, to last year. Um, therefore, um, uh, profitability, although revenues, or although sales will be uh, higher than uh, last year, the revenues, the, the net profit may be uh, not uh, higher than 2021. However, what really counts is uh, the top line. So it is uh, what kind of sales we have. And uh, on that, as I said, all the members of, the, of, um, uh, of this segment um, are very positive and very optimistic. Uh, thanks for Kion. As I pre-announced, we're out of time, but uh, I, I think we had some very uh, informative and very important uh, points. Uh, the positive messages, declining MPLs, uh, a sense of strength and a solid base for the banking system uh, in, uh, in in the Southeast Europe region, um, thanks to good regulation in part, but uh, in general, uh, good messages. Also, of course, a number of challenges uh, with digitalization, uh, with development of capital markets, and of course, threats more general, more systemic, if you want. Uh, energy, obviously, the war in uh, Ukraine, uh, and so forth. I hope that was uh, quite informative for the audience. It was definitely a pleasure uh, to have all, all the distinguished speakers that we had uh, today. Um, I promise, as at least in part, from part of the LSE Southeast Europe at, uh, Research Unit at LSE, to revisit the topic and come back uh, to that, hopefully uh, have the opportunity to host you again uh, as speaker. So uh, virtually, I ask the audience to join me in thanking all our speakers uh, for, for the very interesting presentations and discussion. 
And we'll see you hopefully at another event by the Hellenic Observatory and LSE Research of Southeast Europe after the uh, spring break. Goodbye to everybody. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.